Are we finally ready to start? Live from the City of Roses. I thought this would be funny, but it's not. This is LAAF. Everyone thinks we're incompetent. With Grace Faye. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio. Grace! And another unsung blue-collar hero. Jimmy McCammon. Don't you sometimes hate yourself? Constantly. The old team together again. Oh. Nothing can stop us. See? This you must have dreamed about this moment for a thousand times. Is L-A-A-F. How'd you like it? Oh, I didn't. Thank you. I'm going to leave them the worst review. I love it, Pomona. And Stephen J. Rubin is a film historian and producer of such films as Bleacher Bums and Archie's Final Project and the writer of the Twilight Zone Encyclopedia. Stephen joins us today to talk about his new book, The James Bond Movie Encyclopedia, a smashing compendium of Bond knowledge and imagery for the casual fan or the 007 freakaholic. Buy the book today at LarryEdmonds.com, that's L-A-R-R-Y-E-D-M-U-N-D-S.com, and support Hollywood's one-of-a-kind Larry Edmonds Bookstore. And now, please welcome to the LAAF podcast, Stephen J. Rubin. Where's the stop button? You uh, moved here from Chicago. Uh, I don't know when yet, and I don't know what your start was, you know, in the industry. Did you start out as a writer in the production team? What, what did you start out doing? I went to UCLA. I studied history and journalism. I wrote for the Daily Bruin. Um, kind of got my feet wet in doing interviews. And then when I got out of college, I had started subscribing to a magazine in Chicago called Cine Fantastique, which was kind of the first science fiction fantasy horror magazine that delved into the world of making films and with those kinds of films. And um, I, had, I had started writing a book at that time. Uh, I was really into World War II and World War II movies. And I was doing all these interviews with with filmmakers who made the classics. You know, the are you a history thing. nut generally? Oh yeah, 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 total too. history nut. Um, so I was interviewing this screenwriter named Ted Sherdeman, who had a long screenwriting career. I was particularly interested in a World War II movie he did in 1960 called Hell to Eternity. It was an interesting movie because it's about this guy named Guy Gabaldon played by Jeffrey Hunter, who we know from The Searchers and uh, all these movies. And he, um, Guy was raised in East L.A. by Japanese Americans. And when they went to the internment camps in 1942, Guy joined the Marines. He hung around with Japanese Americans all through school, so he knew them very well. Joins the Marines, goes to Saipan in the South Pacific, and eventually single-handedly captures 1100 japanese wow it was one of the great feats of world war ii and yeah. uh so i'm interviewing sherdeman about the screenplay and he says it kind of remind me of this one scene reminding me what i did in them and when he said them i said wait 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 wait! you wrote that giant ant movie from 1954 you know with the giant ants in the mexico desert one of my seminal uh, uh, film experiences as a kid. Oh, yeah, it's so classic. I, I wrote a letter to Fred Clark, the editor of Cine Fantastique, and he was thrilled that I found Sherdeman. He asked me to go find the director, Gordon Douglas, and I did this article for the magazine, and then I went to Warner's, 
And I guess I got them on a good day. They opened up their still library, and I was able to pull three behind-the-scenes stills and put them in the article. Okay. Now, no one had ever seen a behind-the-scenes still from them, so it created like a, a lot of enthusiasm. So Fred encouraged me to pursue other articles about 50s science fiction films, films like The Day the Earth Stood Still, Forbidden Planet, War of the Worlds. These all became cover stories in the magazine and kind of was my film school. I I kind of learned about filmmaking by interviewing the original filmmakers who made the classics. So um, when I got out of college, I was still writing. Um, the, uh, my very first job was kind of inspired by all this work in science fiction because Fred couldn't afford to really pay his writers. You know, I would work six months on an article, you know, doing all this work. And I, you know, I, I get copies of the magazine to sell at science fiction conventions. Right. So United Artists put an ad in the paper in 1978 looking for somebody to go around to these science fiction conventions and promote their new film, which is, was the, um, the uh, remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers with Donald Sutherland and Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. And the reason they were doing that is that Phil Kaufman, the director of that film, was very friendly with George Lucas. And before Star Wars came out in the summer of 77, he did the exact same thing. He said, send somebody around to all the conventions. So I got into the business in essentially being an advanced PR guy in, uh, in, for films which led me to work in an agency. I briefly opened my own agency in PR and then uh, in my... But because the pieces that you're crafting are, are like uh, an expanded press release, you know, details of the, the film that aren't available otherwise, you know, right? I mean, is right. that... No, exactly. No one had bothered to interview these people ever. I mean, right. this is long before EPKs and documentaries... Peter Bogdanovich was one of the few guys in Hollywood who was doing original interviews yeah. for these kinds of projects. And so um, what happened was um, my, my career has been uh, a case of discovering that I can't make any money from my writing. So I became for 30 years, I was a film publicist. I actually worked on the actual films themselves and what they call a unit publicity. Uh, I was a unit publicist. And I, it's funny, I worked on some great films uh, like Pretty in Pink, the John Hughes film. I was the unit publicist on that. But I'd also work on the, the, the lousy sequels to good movies. I did Porky's 2. I did Weekend oh, at Bernie's 2. Oh, all right. I did Eddie and the Cruisers 2. And the best <laughs> one of the lot was I did Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, which was the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> Big so, fan. So uh, eventually in 92, I get to Showtime. Now Showtime, most of this work I'm doing is on in the field. So I'm out of town most of the time. I had really no social life. I just go off and work on films like most of the roustabouts in Hollywood. Uh, Showtime kind of brought me home. I was became more of an executive in charge of publicity, uh, at least on the production side. And they were making a lot of original movies at that time. So I... I was able to convince them to do a movie based on one of my favorite baseball plays called Bleacher Bums. Yeah. Played on Pico Boulevard for 11 years. It's uh, based on a play written by Joe Montaigne, Dennis Franz, and seven or eight other out-of-work um, Chicago actors. Co-written by all those people? All, the, all those people wrote that, and it was kind of like they're when they were all starving actors in Chicago with Second City or whatever – 
they wrote this play about the Chicago Cubs fans, which played forever and still plays. Uh, we made the movie in 2001. And I was about released gambling very much. I mean, like a lot about gambling too, right? They bet on everything. Yeah, they yeah. Bet on everything, <laughs> which is part of the reason we couldn't get Major League Baseball to approve the picture. So we had to change the name of the club from the Chicago Cubs to the Chicago Bruins which uh, really pissed off the people in Chicago, but we had no choice. Otherwise, we right. couldn't have made the film. Yeah, because I mean, that's I owned kind of, by the baseball uh, I kind of, I kind of use the analogy of one of my favorite football movies is North Dallas 40 with Nick Nolte and Mac Davis. Yeah, That movie's about the Dallas Cowboys, but they changed the name of the team to the North Dallas Bulls. So it didn't really matter what you called the team, although the Chicago critics weren't very kind to us. Right. So I started producing and I got that done. And then I did a World War II movie for a Hallmark Channel called Silent Night, which was nominated for four Canadian TV Academy Awards about a true incident in the Ardennes in 44, where German and American combat troops actually met in a cabin and a woman kept a truce for 10 hours. True story. Wow. And we had Linda Hamilton, the Terminator girl. You know, she played the, the lead and she was great. Um, so I've been going back and forth from writing books about film and just getting some film and TV projects going as a writer producer. Yeah, the last uh, in 2009, you were part of Archie's final project. I was looking at that, too. A lot of uh, which is a wonderful project. Uh, it started out as a documentary. It kind of morphed into a narrative feature. Yeah, uh, which uh, we were very fortunate. Um, the movie's basically uh, about a teenage uh, high school kid who announces in his video class he's going to film his own suicide. So he obviously goes immediately into mental health evaluations. And the story is about how Archie learns, you know, learns to value life and saves a life in, in the process. Um, teenagers who were on the brink of committing suicide wrote us letters after they saw the movie digitally and said that the movie brought them back. Wow. It's a very hopeful movie. And uh, we won the Berlin Film Festival in 09. Yeah, I see um, that. A few awards class. here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and all these Best Picture Awards. It's really, it's still, it's currently on Netflix. It's called uh, under its original title, My Suicide. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So I, if you go, if you go to Netflix today, it's on, uh, it's one of Netflix's favorite independent movies. So they, they're very, very supportive of it. It's called My Suicide. And, um, uh, we had people like Joe Montaigne in it, and uh, we had uh, Mariel Hemingway, uh, Nora Dunn's in it. It was one of uh, David Carradine's last movies. And two extraordinary young actors, one of which is uh, Gabriel Sunday, who plays Archie. And he, he actually ended up co-editing the movie. My friend David Miller directed it, but... Uh, um, Gabriel co-edited the movie. He's the star, and he co-edited the movie. We we think we looked into it. The last person, last last actor who co-edited his own movie might have been Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want them in there generally. I wouldn't say. I mean, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> actors, actors in the editing booth, no way. Yeah. But uh, Gabriel's quite an extraordinary actor. He does the most amazing impressions i'm looking at the stills from the movie and just just looking at the stills i'm i'm thinking that these were hard scenes <laughs> you know um well, this was this was a movie like a lot of independent movies this movie kind of came together 
over a period of time. It was actually in post-production for four years. Wow. So we had a long gestation period on this film, and I think that uh, it benefited from the scrutinization it had, and we're very proud of the picture. Yeah, seems a little uh, uh, ahead of its time. Um, so in terms of producing, like, uh, there's so many weird different roles, like people... You know, people wouldn't really know when you say, like, I produced this or I produced that, what, you know, where you were. Are you the guy in the trailer on the day? Are you the guy in the office? Are you the guy writing checks? Are you the guy trying to get other people to write checks? You know, there's so many, so many things that are in a production team. You know, I'm always interested in, like, you know, what, what do people find enjoyable? What do the people find, you know, what, what do you think is your... Um, you know, your superpower in the industry or the thing that, that you bring to the project? Well, I would hope it's my uh, love of material and either buying, either acquiring or buying somebody else's material or writing it myself. I mean, basically, having studied film all these years, not only as an historian, but as a publicist, promoter, uh, I think I have a good eye for material and uh, people have really enjoyed the projects I've been able to put bring to the marketplace. It's just so challenging now, you know, for yeah. me, uh, you know, when I did the films for Showtime and Hallmark, they were connections I had because I worked there or I knew the heads of the studio. I mean, if you don't know the people, you're standing in a line 72 blocks long, you know, people wanting to get their pictures made. And also, I went down this alley of thinking, oh, I'll just go out and raise money. And, you know, raising money for filmmaking is is one of the most difficult things you can do in life. You I talk to that, anyone who's ever had a crowdfunding campaign. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, I mean, they always say they always say, get a group of dentists. And I said, OK, so I only have one dentist. So I went to him and he didn't want anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. went don't, that go idea. To, don't go to your dentist. You don't want to ruin that relationship. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's funny. It's actually you could do a movie just about raising money for movies. But it hasn't just, you know, it hasn't um, disillusioned me to the point where I don't do it anymore. I mean, I'm out there every day. Uh, the key word these days is, of course, the magic word in Hollywood is packaging. You know, it's not the script anymore. It's got to have the director and you've got to have the lead actor. The name. And yeah. all, all these elements in place. And uh, But, you know, listen, I, I come up with a, a new idea for a movie about every 72 hours. So, you know, we've been cranking them. We've got 23 projects in various stages. And... Uh, we're just fighting the good fight every day. Meanwhile, I've been writing books like the James Bond movie encyclopedia to keep my sanity. Yeah, uh, the James Bond movie encyclopedia. It's uh, the fourth edition, right? And it fourth edition came out in um, November. Came out in November. It's out there selling. I'm doing a promotion now with Larry Edmonds Movie Bookstore in Hollywood. There, uh, if you buy the book there, they'll all go in and sign it, and you'll get an autographed copy. Uh, that's LarryEdmonds.com. It's E-D-M-U-N-D-S. And um, Bond has been fun. I mean, when I going back to when I was writing those science fiction articles for Cinefantastique, I discovered that no one had done a book on Bond from the behind-the-scenes point of view. You know, there had been, been one book published in the 70s called James Bond of the Cinema, which was just a tribute book, re recreating the, the plots for each movie and not talking about really how the movies were made. And 
I went to Albert R. Broccoli in 1977 and I got an interview with him and he introduced me to Michael Wilson, who now produces the films with uh, Broccoli's daughter, Barbara. Was that and, in was that in your magazine's wheelhouse? I mean, were they into you bringing that interview in just because he was big or, you know, I mean, it was, seems like it's not not as much a sci-fi thing. I think that what got me in the door with Broccoli was the fact that I'd finished that book on combat films and I had all these interviews to show him that I had done. And uh, it was just timing wise. You know, I just got in there at the right moment. Uh, our... Uh, so I went over to London that summer and I spent uh, the, uh, the month of August interviewing filmmakers who had worked with the Bonds on all these levels and got some great interviews and uh, just gathered a lot of original material that became my first book, which was called The James Bond Films uh, Behind the Scenes History. That was published by Arlington House in 81. And then nine years later, uh, contemporary books came to me and said, uh, we've had success with a Marilyn Monroe encyclopedia and an Elvis Presley encyclopedia. Would you do a James Bond encyclopedia? And I just said, sure. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so, was, so, so you went and did a book about a character, though, rather than a personality, you know, like um, what did you find the source material tougher? Were you already a gigantic Bond fan? So you had a chapter title for each chapter or? i i was just a huge fan of the early sean connery bonds less roger although i respected roger and the films were very successful but his more comic take on the character was not as much fun for me but i certainly respected the fact that the numbers on on you know, opening the numbers uh, the opening numbers on on Rogers Moore, Moore films, excuse me, Roger Moore's films were were very very respectable. In fact, they did even more success than the, the early Connery Bonds. Did he uh, he brought along a lot of his fans from his TV shows? Like people maybe don't know how big uh, Roger Moore's TV shows were, you know, and what a big star he was. Right, The Saint and The Persuaders. Yeah, um, The Saint is. It's amazing. interesting. Amongst Super Bond fans, there's this conjecture that if George Lazenby had done more than the one Bond he did between Connery and Moore, um, that he could have gone on and be, been James Bond. But I, I'm beginning yeah. to think, as much as I like George, and if you haven't seen Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which was his one Bond film uh, in 69, it's a terrific film. And he is amazing. Now, here's, here's someone who lied their way into the audition <laughs> and claimed he did all these movies in Eastern Europe, and he was lying through his teeth, but he was so good looking and so comfortable in, in the interview that the producers went nuts for him. And then, then he has to tell the director, Peter Hunt. Now, Peter Hunt's a great, great person. B Peter Hunt had edited the first four James Bond movies. He's a great editor. And he's getting his first Bond movie to direct. In fact, his first movie to direct. It's his film debut. And uh, Lazenby comes up to him soon after he gets the role, gets the role and says, I had, I had to lie to the guys. I haven't never acted in my life. And Peter almost had a heart attack because oh, no. here's this big break. Now it's his back. ass on the line. Exactly. Yeah. So, as far as I know, the way Peter explained it, he decided with a, a rather unusual approach to George because since he had no acting experience he didn't want to clutter him with a lot of stuff so he, he stayed away from him a lot and he even kind of pissed him off a little bit to get a little more edge to his performance 
And the result was great for the picture, but bad for George's experience. So when he decided, he had to decide on whether he wanted to continue in the role. He so he was, was invited of, back. He was invited back, but he was wavering. And then his agent at the time gave him probably the worst advice in the history of show business. He said that, you know, Bond is done. I get out now. There's so much money on the table, but their instinct to leave is so strong, you know, because of just how the industry is, how how people are treated, you know, um, and and what a, I mean, even on a good day, it's grueling as hell. So, you know, someone without any experience, like you're saying Lazenby had, like it's, you know, it's not surprising to me having like kind of even just put my toe in the industry that, that, yeah, it could be too grueling for someone psychologically, (laughs) emotionally. (laughs) He also admits that his ego was the size of Denmark at that time. Okay. (laughs) And, you know, he he basically, uh, you know, he, he was saying F you to all this stuff. In fact, for the premiere of the movie, I think he grew a beard, and you know uh, he didn't was photographed. Like... Didn't want to look like Bond, yeah. you know. And it's funny. This is the end of the '60s, so we're talking about. There's a lot of counterculture going on, particularly in London. I mean, London is the, where it all starts, right? So a guy walking around looking like James Bond in a suit yeah. was considered a real goonie. Yeah, and right. I think people. People didn't realize, or particularly his agent didn't realize the, the the what he was turning down. And but it's funny because what I was going to say is, yes, you can say George would have been terrific as he would have, but would he have carried the films to the level Roger did? I don't think so. I don't think because so Roger, either. Roger, as you said, had this huge following already, and Roger Moore was kind of a big screen actor. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you see him in films like The Spy Who Loved Me and Octopussy, he carries the film really well. And I think that the the size of the movies got really big, and, you know, they were enormously successful at a time when tentpole pictures, which are now the mainstay of Hollywood with the superhero movies and the science fiction extravaganzas, they weren't around in those days. This is this is the period when when Bond and Star Wars were really the only game in town. Yeah, it took me. I Roger Moore was my uh, first Bond, so it took me since I had that bond with him it took me like a while to see that like perhaps sean connery could be have like considered to be a technically better in the acting role of it or you know it took me a while to to see around my own uh preferences preference to uh to roger moore you know even in the even in what might be described as his worser movies i loved him he was you know Oh yeah, well, then it's it's axiomatic that you are you love the bond you grow up with. Yeah. So it's completely understandable <laughs> that Rogers your guy, and that Sean Connery was some guy who did it way in the past. But, but now, as, as an adult, I watch those movies, and I'm like the I'm like Sean Connery nailed it. You know. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. But you know, I'll tell you, we're very fortunate because Daniel Craig, I thought has also delivered a cool bond. Any of the any of the actors who have played Bond, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't exactly imagine them in the role, but like that's almost why they work so well. You know, it's almost casting against type. Like Roger Moore was maybe the the most natural looking Bond, you know? Sean Connery's too too skin and too too skinny and too small, you know? Uh uh uh, I can't believe you said Sean Connery was skinny and small. He's like six. 
He's like six four. Well, well, I mean, I don't mean short, but I mean, you know, he's not a he's not a, a ripped dude. You know, he's like he's got his shirt off a lot in some of the old films, and like he's kind of a little pale and wiry. You know, like, and that's by today's standards too. When everybody gets jacked up on creatine and <laughs> and has that's an true. I mean has an eight pack. Craig Craig comes off uh, kind of thuggish. You know, he's not yeah. a pretty boy. But I'll tell you, that first film of his, Casino Royale, just blew out the stops. I thought that he, he's running over those construction cranes, chasing this parkour specialist. And we I just was blown away by the physicality of the role. And he's hurt himself on every one of his films. I mean, he really gets into it. I mean, he yeah, he's know, a stunt guy. He's got that he's, uh, he's got that I Tom think, Cruise thing where he really yeah. wants to be hanging off the helicopter and shit. Yeah. Um, oh, uh, so so uh, I was uh, wondering. I mean, it, we're getting to thirty minutes, so I don't want to keep it forever. Um, but I was wondering, like, uh, just being in the industry doing you know uh uh doing production work um seeing all the sides of it taking a movie apart from different angles you know wondering almost constantly as we've been talking about like its marketability you know what will other people think of it has it like affected or or like ruined just just enjoying as a viewer you know movies to you i've noticed like it's changed me. It's changed the way I watch films, you know, and I'm trying not to let it anymore. I want that like I want the joy I originally <laughs> had watching a movie, you know, to just still be there, you know, and I think there's a way to maintain that. But like to me, it's like I got to be conscious of it. Well, I'll tell you, the um, this whole covid period has forced us to watch everything on the small screen. You've got a big screen. And um, I think that. What I've discovered is how much I miss watching a movie for the first time in the theaters where you're just it's just you and the crowd getting fed this and there's no distractions. Nobody's running the toilet or turning on a sink water uh, there. There's nobody running through. There's nobody yelling at you from your neighbor's porch. Uh, one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years was the, was the Sandra Bullock movie, Gravity. I thought that was really a cool movie to see in the theaters because you are transfixed. And uh, I watched that movie later on on television, and it was an entirely different experience. I think that part of the reason I'm hoping that when we see the new Bond movie, we see it on the big screen, is you can't watch a James Bond movie for the first time on television. That's almost blasphemous. I don't think we've seen the end of movie theaters. I think that when people are vaccine have their vaccines and the 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 the, the coronavirus starts to disappear, I think they'll start opening the theaters again and we'll get back to a sense of normalcy. I think more people like to watch things on streaming. That's great. But um if you think about it, the movie business had already become kind of a tentpole business anyway. You sat there and decided, do I want to see this in the theater or do I want to see this on my TV? And for a, for a lot of us, um, we go to the movies just for the epic movies, either the Avengers or Batmans, you know, with occasionally. One of the reasons I've decided to write comedy over the last five years is I felt comedies have been really left by the wayside. There really have not been a lot of great comedies like Back to the Future 
or Ghostbusters or Night at the Museum, family comedy adventures that, you know, you can bring the whole family to. I mean, I admired Hangover, but would I bring my seven-year-old to a Hangover movie? No, no. Or my 82-year-old grandmother? I mean, no. I mean, that's not right. No, there's a real dearth of that type of stuff, you know. I mean, people, it's obvious in people's watching habits. Everybody's re-binging The Office. Everybody's re-binging all these old sitcoms, Cheers and stuff, you know, like... They want something, you know, a little edgy. It was edgy as at its time, you know, but now it's mildly wholesome and everyone's craving that and everyone's craving a laugh. And, uh, you know, we said at the very beginning, I said, I'm craving a laugh. I've been writing sketch comedy, you know, you, using the time to just take these, these two-line joke ideas, you know, and then build a little character out of them and stuff, you know. And it, in terms of the material, I find it so much more fun, you know, because it's like, I need the laugh. Oh, no, absolutely. We, when we finish a screenplay, in normal times, we would invite about 20 actors to come down and play parts, and then we bring an audience in to listen to the comedy because when you're, when you're uh, doing comedy, you want to make sure they're getting the jokes, yeah. you know, that it's working. Yeah, you so got to read it out, and it's got to make you laugh. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. And we've had a lot of fun with that, and we're hoping to do that again in uh, in the new world uh, that hopefully is coming soon. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I got my fingers crossed, and I, I, I got a feeling that it'll just be a bounce back. You know, everyone's craving all the old stuff we loved. You know, we just went through New Year's Eve and didn't party, and I think that's about the limit for everybody. You know, everybody I know who's sane is down to get the vaccine, and yeah, I think the stuff's going to bounce back. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to our interview with Stephen J. Rubin, author and producer. We're going to put up the second half of the interview over on patreon.com slash LAAF. So if you'd like to hear more uh, wisdom and anecdotes from the great author, please uh, head over there and become a subscriber for as little as a dollar a month. Well, that's the end of that adventure. Should we all go back to bed? If you're listening to 